Well, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, we'll be looking at the first eight verses of this chapter this morning. And I'll warn you now, this is a, a bit more technical of a passage than we're used to. Um, there's really no way around teaching this chapter without getting into some of the technicalities. Um, this is speaking of the 144,000 who are sealed. Uh, of this passage, Jehovah's Witnesses claim that prior to 1935, 144,000 people were anointed to enter heaven. It's their opinion that this is the limit of those who will actually be in heaven, a literal number. Um, Latter-day Saints believe there are 144,000 high priests who have been ordained according to the holy order of God. Um, and Christians have their own confusing interpretations of this passage. Many, many, many different opportunities to go astray in this passage. Um, and so, uh, with those confusing interpretations, with so many out there, it's important to remind ourselves the context of this original audience. To remember that, that he was writing here to a particular, or to, to specific churches in Asia Minor. That doesn't mean that he was only writing with them in mind, but he certainly has them in mind. They should be able to hear the book of Revelation, and understand it. So if your interpretation of any kind of passage is so outlandish that it makes no sense to a first century reader, then you've got a problem because it would have been fruitless for them. It wouldn't have, have been for their edification. Or if it's all for just a very future and far off judgment or, or uh, end times events that's, that's happening you know, later on, maybe not even in our lifetime, Again, you have a challenge of relating it. Is it edifying for the people that are listening to this passage now? So this revelation is meant to be preserved and shared with the broader church community. When, when Jesus revealed these things to John, he wrote them down and he recorded them and he gave them to those original seven churches and then they, they shared that as well with a broader community. And it's been preserved to this day for us. So there is something about the sealing of the 144,000 servants of God from the 12 tribes of Israel that is meant to encourage the whole church of God. In the previous passage, in chapter 6, verse 17, concluded with this question, who can stand? It was a cry of despair from, from Christ's rivals, from his enemies. Right, as they were coming under the judgment of, of God at the second coming of Christ in the sixth seal, they're crying out for the rocks and mountains to fall upon them. They would rather die than face judgment, than face that final judgment of Christ. So they cry out, who can stand? Well, what we see is the answer to that question in chapter 7. Those who can stand are the ones who have received his seal. Right, only those who receive the seal of God will be able to stand in that day. 
So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage. We recognize that it is meant for our edification, for our good. We ought to be encouraged by it, and yet we know there's so much confusion surrounding this. We need your spirit to open our eyes, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe this truth. Lord, help us to understand it and to apply it. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that is the east, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, I want to consider this passage from three different questions or by asking three different questions. And the first one is going to take the longest, and it's the one that most of us want to understand uh, most. It's who are the 144,000 sealed? Who are the 144,000 sealed? And we'll start off by explaining the most common view among evangelical Christians today it's probably that there 144,000 represent a literal number of ethnic Jews. A literal number of ethnic Jews. This would be the dispensational view. And what they believe is that Christ has already, at this point in Revelation, Christ has already raptured the church from the earth so that they're in heaven with Jesus. And now... Those who are left on the earth of that great number, 144,000 ethnic Jews will be selected, I guess, or uh, will, uh, will represent servants of God who will then be sealed and have to go through the seven years of tribulation that come upon the earth. So... These Jews have been converted to Christianity because it's describing them as servants of God in this passage. But they are left on earth to go through the seven years of tribulation, and their task during that time is to proclaim the gospel. The result then would be that in verses 9 through 17, you have a great multitude from every nation in heaven 
representing sort of the fruit of the labors of these 144,000. So, the dispensational view sees ethnic Jews in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7, and then their converts from every nation in verses 9 through 17. What I want to do is make a, a case for something different, though. Because I believe it makes more sense to view both groups as referring to the same people, both the 144,000 at the beginning of chapter 7 as well as the great multitude are describing the same people, namely the Israel of God or true Israel. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that that is a very common image of, Israel, of, of the people of God, the church of God being described in terms that are relevant for Israel. Right? The, the church receives the promises that were given to Old Testament Israel. And so they are described as the Israel of God, right? receiving those same promises. <clears throat> Let me try to make sense of this now through four primary points. First, the, the 144,000 are mentioned again. You can look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. You specifically says the 144,000 there. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name on his, uh, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the one hundred forty-four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these. Who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who, who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So notice there's this general description of these 144,000 as redeemed of the earth, as followers of God. And yet there's also this very specific description of them being male virgins. Well, what are we to make sense? How are we to make sense of that? Is, is this 144,000 now limited to Jewish virgins who have con converted to Christianity? Does that make the best sense of this? Or in a passage that is filled with symbolism and imagery, do we understand the, the purity of these, of these saints representing a spiritual purity, right? A, a people who have not fallen into the idolatry that Satan has tempted the world and brought them under, the idolatry of worshiping the beast, right? He's protected them from that. So this is, that, that's one, one reason why I think um, the 144,000 here is not a literal number, but a figurative representation of the broader community of the church, because the language that describes them fits with the, um, with the description of those who have, who have been faithful to him, who have not been, un, who, who have not been defiled by idolatry. Secondly, the number is, is really stylistic. It's too perfect to be a precise statistic. The 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. It's figurative. It's, reference, uh, it's a reference to the complete number of God's elect. It's much like Jesus' exhortation to forgive 70 times 7. 
Right? When someone said, Jesus, should I forgive the one who sins against me seven times? And he says, no, 70 times seven. That doesn't mean here's your, here's your piece of chalk and start tallying up every time you've had to forgive someone until you get to 490 and then you're done. You no longer have to, to hear their apologies, right? You can stop. No, of course not. He's talking about the idea that you're to, con- unconditionally, you're to continue to forgive, right? You're to continue to offer forgiveness to those who have sinned against you, to be ready to forgive completely. And so we can reach this number of 144,000 by multiplying 12 by 12. And that is 144, and then multiplying the 144 by 1,000. Those numbers are highly symbolic in Revelation. Uh, we see the same ones again in Revelation chapter 21. And if you want to turn there to see for yourself, I encourage you to do so. In Revelation chapter 21, Verses 1 through 8, John is given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And then this angel brings him to the new Jerusalem to see the bride of the Lamb. He's brought to the new Jerusalem in verse 9 to see the bride, the wife of the Lamb, it says. And down in uh, verse 16, you see that number. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, 12,000 stadia. Now, stadia would represent um, about 607 feet. So, so this number, 12,000 stadia, would be 1,380 miles. So if we're being literal here, then the New Jerusalem will take up Basically, half of the United States by, by square, the same width and, and uh, length and height. It'll actually extend into the stratosphere in the New Jerusalem. But if you're understanding it from that first century reader, the known world at that time would have been really about that distance, Asia Minor in the Far East to the other side, Persia. You have roughly the same kind of of, of area being described. In other words, if we're not taking it literally, if we're taking it symbolically, what he's saying here is that the new Jerusalem will cover the globe. It will cover the known world. So, on top of that, it's uh, the, the same in chapter 21. It says the city is 12,000 stadia long. It's um, Surrounded by a great wall that measures 144 cubits tall, which would be 216 feet. So it's this gigantic city with a gigantic wall. On top of that, that, that wall has 12 gates and 12 foundations. And in verse 12, it tells us it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So on the gates themselves are inscribed the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on the foundations, what do you find? In verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. So 12 representatives of the old covenant the tribes of Israel, 12 representatives of the new covenant equals 144, if you multiply those together, 
representatives as the bride of Christ. Right? Then multiply that by a thousand to, to um, illustrate the complete number. This large number it expresses the complete people of God. So it seems clear from these parallels that the entire people of God are represented symbolically here as 144,000 saints who belong to true Israel, who will inherit all the blessings of the new Jerusalem. Okay. Thirdly, the idea that God has separate purposes for Gentiles and Jews during the last days goes against the consistent teaching of all of Scripture, but certainly of the New Testament, that the church has brought Jews and Gentiles together as a single people. And I had a plan to kind of go through each one of the passages. There's several passages, especially in the epistles, that speak of, the, of true Israel being those who believe. Those who have the faith of Abraham are his children. So all the servants of God, not just ethnic Jews, are said to be sealed elsewhere in Scripture. You can look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, or 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22, speaks of the saints of God being sealed. And all of this is consistent with how John portrays the saints in the rest of the book of Revelation. Whenever he talks about servants, servants of God, he's always referring to, to all redeemed saints, not just Jews, who've been marked by God's name on their foreheads. So the same lamb who was praised for ransoming people for God from every tribe and people and nation also redeemed the 144,000 servants. They're all described in the same manner. So if, if they are saved in the same way, they're described as being sealed in the same way, why would we not assume that it's the same people? Right? All believers are referred to as a kingdom and priests fulfilling the kingly and priestly roles of the old covenant. You find that in chapter 1, verse 6, again in chapter 5, verse 10, all here in, in the same book in Revelation. You have the conquering saints in Pergamum who will be rewarded with hidden manna, again, uh, uh, pointing back to the old covenant community, but now a blessing being given to the new covenant community. Uh, the conquering saints in Philadelphia will become pillars in God's temple. All of this is symbolic language of the promises given to the old covenant community now coming to those who receive Christ by faith, those who are united into one people. Lastly, if the, if the 144,000 represent the whole people of God, then why are they depicted as coming from each tribe of Israel? That's, the, that's, why most, or that's why a lot of people take this literally because it specifically says the 12,000 are from the tribe of Judah or from the tribe of Reuben or Gad and on down the list. Well, similar language is found in census passages in the Old Testament. You have from the tribe of, you know, from the tribe of Reuben, but the numbers there are, are, are not stylistic like they are here. You have Reuben in, in Numbers 1, for example, in the census there. Reuben is said to have a, a tribe of 46,500. Simeon is said to be a tribe of 59,300. 
So you have these very precise and specific numbers being given in the Old Testament as they take a census. And why were they taking a census? They were counting the males among them who were of fighting age. This would make sense of the reference in Revelation 14 that we began with. Revelation 14, 4, where only the males were counted. Right? So this isn't a literal army here of 144,000. It represents the church militant on earth, called to fight against spiritual principalities and powers throughout this present age. So in summary, the 144,000 are the church militant on earth, which upon Christ's return makes up the great multitude of the church triumphant in heaven in the latter half of the passage. So all of chapter 7 considers the complete number of saints from two different locations. One, they're on earth. In in the second location, they're in heaven. And this is similar to what we saw in chapter 5. Remember, as John was seeing the throne of God, as he was witnessing the, the glory that was emanating from the throne, he heard the Lion of Judah who was, he heard about the line of Judah who was worthy to take the scroll from the one who was seated on the throne. And then it says, he saw the lamb. He heard about the lion of Judah who was worthy to open the scroll. And then he turned and saw the lamb who was slain. The lion and the lamb referred to the same person. Here in chapter seven, John heard the number of the sealed servants of God was 144,000 in verse 4 before seeing the great multitude that no one could number in verse 9. Thus, the 144,000 and the great multitude are the same people. As Rick Phillips would say, they, they are one body, the church, first depicted in battle array on earth and then as glorified in heaven. So with that in mind, with, with the who the 144,000 are, we can, we can now ask the second question, when are the 144,000 sealed? When are they sealed? Well, if we're reading this in a strict chronic, chronological order, then the most, uh, as most dispensationalists would do, then we would have to read this sealing as having taken place after the six seals. Right? So you have the first six seals have already been broken, in chapter 6, and then in chapter 7, John, John hears and sees this vision. So if we're reading it chronologically, then it would mean that the sealing of these servants takes place after the judgment of the first six seals. Those seals clearly depict judgment upon the earth. Remember, Back in the first four seals, you had, um, you had conquest, war, um, famine, and death being described as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then in chapters, or in the, at the end of chapter six, you have the sixth seal being described as a great earthquake, the sun becoming black as sackcloth, the, the moon becoming like blood, stars falling to the earth. 
the, uh, as fig tree sheds its winter fruit. So the earth is being affected. It's being harmed very clearly by these seals. The inhabitants of the earth are so fearful that they're asking for the mountains to fall upon them by the end of that sixth seal. Well, what do we read in verse 3 of chapter 7? Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So an angel commands, in, uh, the, the angel's command here in verse 3 would suggest that we are looking at an event that precedes the destruction of the seals described in chapter 6. And that's not hard to understand if we realize that Revelation is constantly cycling back to the beginning of the present age and making its way to the end time, to Christ's second coming. It's only a problem if you want to read the entire book of Revelation as a chronology, in chronological order, because then you have to describe somehow that the earth or that the angels disobeyed the command here because they've already brought destruction upon the earth. So the first four seals unleashed the four horsemen of conquest, war, famine, and death. And regardless of their limitations, we know that they don't, that it said that they were limited to only destroy like a portion of the earth, 25% or so, but they clearly are bringing harm upon the earth and its inhabitants. And as we consider the description of the devastating judgments from the sixth seal, uh, how could we make any sense of chapter 7, verse 3, if it were to be following chronologically? However, when you consider the Old Testament allusions, as I've said, it's important to do when you're reading Revelation, the picture becomes more apparent because these four angels that are described here in chapter 7, verse 1, as holding back the four winds of the earth are equivalent to the four horsemen who were permitted to wreak havoc upon the earth in chapter 6, 1 through 8. Because John is alluding here to Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And where there, there were four chariots driven by horses of various colors, similar to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the angel informs Zechariah that these are going out to the four winds of the heavens. So he's sending these chariots out to the four winds of the heavens. And now in chapter 7 in Revelation, it's saying, hold on. Hold on to your horses. <laughs> so wait, don't, in, don't wreak havoc yet. Don't start doing anything yet until we have sealed the servants of God. So when the four winds are allowed to blow in Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 36, they scatter Elam into exile in every direction. When it speaks of four winds blowing, it's chaos. It's judgment. The wind in Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, stirs up the sea from which the beasts ascend and and then are, are conquered by another beast that comes out after them. So Daniel chapter 7 has the same idea of wind stirring up the sea, stirring up chaos and destruction. So here the angels are preventing the wind from bringing that destruction while God's servants are sealed. So let me just make it very plain here. When are the 144,000 sealed? God ensures the safety of his people, of all his people, by marking them with his seal before they go through the tribulation of the seals. And as we've 
you can go back and listen, but as we described the seals of chapter 6, 1 through 8, we said that those are seals of judgment that are carried out throughout this church age, throughout this present age. So before those go out, God is sealing his saints. Before the lamb breaks the seven seals of destruction, the servants of God are sealed for protection. You have the promise of his protection. So now the most pressing question for us to answer is how are the 144,000 sealed? What does all this mean? How are the 144,000 sealed? So here's where we get to the application. Seal is used for different purposes in scripture. Uh, They can seal the contents of the scroll in chapter five, verse one. There were seven seals that were keeping that scroll closed until the one who was worthy to open the seals. Uh, So the seal is used to conceal the contents. Um, Satan is thrown into the pit that is then sealed so that he cannot deceive the nations in chapter 20, verse three. Uh, letters are sealed in order to designate the authority of the sender. And finally, your saints are sealed in order to protect them and to preserve them through suffering. So seals are a protection. They're also a sign of authenticity. So let me draw this out here. Again, this is symbolism here. We're not going to literally have a seal or a a tattooed name on our foreheads, um, unless you do that. But but this this is describing symbolically God's protection of his people. The 144,000 are secured in the hand of God because of their adoption, because they've become children of God. These servants of God are set apart as belonging to him. They've been identified as God's chosen servants. He places his seal upon them to certify the authenticity of their faith. And finally, the seal of God speaks of the confirmation of the Holy Spirit which has been given to each believer as a guarantee of their inheritance. You can find that in 2 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 1. So in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, the Israelites uh, were said to sigh and groan, or it said those who were sighing and groaning. Remember, in Ezekiel, we've seen the people were idolatrous. They were constantly being judged for their idolatry. But in chapter 9, verse 4, Uh, Someone is commanded to go and to mark anyone in Jerusalem who is sighing and groaning over all the abominations that are committed. In other words, those who who are in sorrow, those who are mourning over their idolatry, they are to receive a mark on their foreheads. And this mark protected them from the one who passed through later and slaughtered everyone in the city who did not have the mark. And that was all a vision that Ezekiel was given and described back in chapter 9. And that was literally carried out when they went into exile. But it was a description, a vivid description of the judgment of God that was going to come upon those who were living in idolatry. Those who would refuse to repent. But the ones who did repent, the ones who were mourning and sorrowful over the idolatry of the people, received a mark on their foreheads. Well, here in Revelation, the protection is spiritual. 
rather than physical. Many in the church had already suffered persecution, even death, as we said in chapter 2. And some would be, who would not worship the beast will be slain by the beast. They'll, be, they'll join the martyrs that are under the altar in chapter 6. Rather than physically escaping tribulation by the rapture, the church is spiritually protected through tribulation. So the mark of the beast is another counterfeit of Satan to mimic God's seal. Just as all Satan's followers are given his mark, so all God's followers are given the seal. It's not just given to a portion. Rezegui says this, in the narrative world of the apocalypse, persons bear either God's seal or the mark of the beast. It's one or the other. You either identify yourself with the beast or you identify yourself with God. And so this fulfills Isaiah's prophecies. Those who have been effectually called by God belong to him and they receive the promise that he will keep them and use them to open the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 42. They will be a light to the nations so that God's salvation may reach the end of the earth. Isaiah 49, verse 6. And to all generations. Isaiah 51, verse 8. Because saints have received God's seal, the world will be evangelized until representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation belong to the great multitude of the church triumphant. But the seal also enables our perseverance. Right, the seal of God prevents believers from accepting the mark of the beast. Because God has written his name upon their foreheads, Satan cannot mark them out for himself. They have been reserved by the Most High. And they may be persecuted. They may even be beheaded, as some are described as having experienced in chapter 20, verse 4. But the seal of God empowers their witness and it enables them to stand fast in the face of even the harshest persecution. I like what Charles Spurgeon says here. He says, it's impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, not only, uh, or, but only good in a mysterious form. Ill to him is not ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. So, if you belong to Christ by faith, you belong to the 144,000 who have already received the seal of his spirit, who both empowers your witness and enables your perseverance throughout your life. So who can stand? Truly no one can stand under the wrath of God. His wrath must be averted but his holiness demands justice. And so first, we acknowledge that the penalty of our sin has already been paid for by the blood of Christ. The wrath of God has been averted by the lamb who was slain in our place. The holy lamb satisfied the demands of justice. And then second, those who accept the free offer of the gospel by faith are immediately sealed. 
by the Holy Spirit. And that seal of the Holy Spirit empowers and enables us to fight against sin and to persevere until Christ returns. And so if you're a true believer, you will indeed witness and you will indeed persevere. The evidence of the presence of God's Spirit in your life will be the fruit of your labors. Do you pray for the lost to be found? And do you pray for more laborers to enter into the plentiful harvest? Harvest, as Matthew 9, verse 37 says. Are you willing to go out and share your faith, empowered by his spirit? Because you can go in the confidence that he will both keep you and use you for his kingdom purposes. So let us pray and give him the glory for these promises. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, and uh, we thank you that it is a challenging passage that requires some thinking, requires us to look and consider other passages of Scripture that are parallel to this to understand it rightly. Lord, we want to be assured of these things in our own lives. We want to be built up and encouraged and strengthened to face whatever persecution may come whatever trials may lay ahead. So Lord, protect us. Help us to go out in confidence knowing that you have empowered our witness. Because you have sealed us for yourself, you have given us that assurance of your spirit who empowers and enables us to walk in obedience Lord, we thank you for these promises and we ask that you would be glorified as we consider these things and as we respond to this truth, recognizing your love for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.